This episode of Truth Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IVPress and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. And buy the Red Flag Podcast. Learn more at redflagpod.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Truth Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm Akemini. I'm Michelle. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, sisters. How y'all doing? Oh, well, 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 well. <laughs> I'm like, it's we still in the pandemic, so the wells are, are going to be random this, this hey. season. We are in a pandemic and we're in the midst of an uprising. Hello. And the last time we recorded together, there wasn't no uh, uprising had not occurred. Oh my gosh, that's uh, yeah. right. Yeah. So that's where we are now. Oh. See how you doing, girl? I am tired. I've been moving and relocating. So all well, and then moving and relocating in the midst of COVID nineteen is just stupid. So that's where I am. <laughs> yes, that seems like the right descriptor. <laughs> we are praying your strength. In Amen. The for real. Amen. Because moving in and of itself is already hard and like nobody wants to have to do that. And then in the midst of a pandemic, mm, yeah, not so much. So strength and grace to see y'all, please pray yeah. for her. Yeah, as she is in the midst of that, yeah. and then school year is coming up, and don't nobody know what's going on. It's a lot going on. It's mm. so much. Oof, it's too much. It too much. It we out much. here though, trying to grab some joy. Anyhow, you know, that's right. Yeah, trying, right. grasping. <laughs> we are grasping. <laughs> Look, at least talking about it. At least talk about joy. That's right. At least we can name it. You know, <laughs> so keep keep saying it. Oh, Hold goodness. on to the joy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because the pain mm-hmm. in 2020 is it's a lot. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, well, let's come back to the table because um, we, you know, with the uprising, you know, on these calls to defund the police and abolish the police um, and abolish prisons, there's been um, a lot of abolitionist demands have obviously been, come to the fore and they've become mm-hmm. somewhat mainstream. I think that's a fair way to um, uh, sure. say that. Yeah. And, um, and folks have the questions we actually some of the sisters actually at the table were like i'm waiting for truth table to do an abolition series <laughs> <laughs> we were like i don't know if we're gonna do an abolition series but we can do an episode <laughs> so, this episode is asking abolitionists so, mm-hmm. and y'all know michelle is the um abolitionist at the table and you will know you know we're all um the three of us are all very much locked into issues of justice um, anything pertaining to racism, anti-Black violence, or white supremacy. So this is definitely in our wheelhouse and it made sense for us to talk about um, abolition. What is it? Um, so we're just asking questions, really, really basic 
questions, um, you know, to mm-hmm. find out like, what does this look like uh, practically? And hopefully we can ideate um, uh, toward the end and dream of dream up. Yeah. Um, what like the world um, or our world to look like. So uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what shall we, how should we start? See what you, would you, how you want to, what you want to do? <laughs> well, you know, I think what's always could be helpful in this case, like the Ask an Abolitionist, which is our resident Michelle, um, is mm-hmm. could, could you just tell us what that means? Um, when And I imagine in just like in every movement, every mm-hmm. uh, kind of philosophy, there are people who are all over the map underneath the same umbrella. If you can give us like a broad brushstroke and then maybe uh some different camps within that i think that would be helpful for us just to get our bearings and for our listeners to get their bearings in this conversation yeah i think that number one it's it's always so many definitions of everything right. floating around right so you have the demand uh as e said the demand to defund police uh which is uh misinterpreted by uh folks who would consider themselves um advocates for police and prison reform. Uh, The misinterpretation there is the idea that defund the police means to reduce funding. Um, That the people Mm. who created the demand to defund police, uh, they are abolitionists and they operate Mm -hmm. uh, from the position of society does not need police in part because Mm -hmm. history has proven to us we have no need of them and also in part because um, the current uh, system of policing you know you can't have a bad apple every 28 hours Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then there are no there are no apples it's just all right you know Um, so basically uh, I think the thing to do is maybe start in the present and to say what you're hearing is defund police, defund police, and that that is intended to say defund to to zero. The timeline of that mm. is something that people agree has to has to be intentional, um, and the background of it, the the foundation of it, as C said, is um, so many different definitions. The one that right. I work with is the uh, definition of 21st century abolition that is directly. Um, aligned with the movement for Black Lives, but it comes from uh, our key abolitionist uh, partners. Critical Resistance is the name of this initiative. It's almost 15 years old. It's probably about 20 years old now. And if you want to learn more, you can go to criticalresistance.org. But Critical Resistance presents a twofold abolition, and that is the understanding that both the prison system, which we call the prison industrial complex, and the and policing, uh, we need neither of those uh, in the United States, in our communities. Um, the idea of abolition is a political vision, and it has the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, surveillance, um, militarism, and creating uh, what we would call a transformative alternatives, uh, sustainable alternatives. Um, and you know, some people would say humane. I think you could put that word in too, but I, our focus here continues to be justice. And we believe that sustainable and um, really uh, uh, reconciliatory alternatives uh, to punitive punishment, uh, those things will make our community more healthy. So we're not saying 
tear down every jail. And that is what abolition is. Uh, What we are saying is we do need to get rid of buildings full of cages because a person who is inclined to, to, to do harm, to be harmful, only becomes more harmful in a cage. And so, yes, we are saying that we don't want prisons anymore. But the point of abolition theory is to rebuild, is to create uh, a space where we know um, that we we imagine everyone developing into their whole self. We imagine everyone um, being in a space where they know their community, they trust their community, and those that they do not trust are held accountable on a system that is not based in uh, racism and classism. So it is for sure about getting rid of prisons and police, but it's also about literally undoing the corruption at the root of the society we live in. Um, because so so much of our justice system actually feeds on and maintains oppression, um, actually sanctions um, inequality, uh, rather than saying, oh, well, punishment is what protects us. That's, that's not really what protects us. It's community, it's wholeness that mm-hmm. keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. And that's what abolition is saying. That's how we, that's what we're centering in that. Okay, so based off of of, of that, uh, you know, getting talking about how the systems it's it's a it, it just continues to exacerbate you know um, the violence and perpetuate mm-hmm. that right, and um, mm-hmm. people that are prone to harm are going to continue to do harm because they're in uh, really well they're in behind cages in a harmful environment. Um, I think is that fair to sh- say, Michelle, as a as a quick synopsis does that does that mm-hmm. sound like a right s- summary okay yeah. um so if say say today if um if the powers that be like the political powers <laughs> that be um mm-hmm. in the office right now say all right you know we tired of hearing y'all we're gonna go ahead and defend defund the police you know like that wicked judge right like all right because That's of right. y'all in the scriptures <laughs> because you won't give bothering. me <laughs> Since you're bothering me, I'm going to let you have whatever it is you say. So let's just say, <laughs> let's say the powers that be say, all right, all right, we're tired of y'all. We're going to defund the police. We're going to um, get rid of police. We, or I'm, we're going to abolish the police. We are going mm-hmm. to abolish um, prisons. Uh, mm-hmm. What does that look like today? If that happened today, that announcement mm-hmm. came forth, how does that look like? How would that actually be implemented from an abolitionist standpoint? What does that look like tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You know, when that, you know, like when that act, that um, policy goes forward. Yeah. Uh, and so this is where I, I move into uh, different categories, different organizations, different, you know, hyper local focus, um, organizing uh, demands and vision. So what the process of saying, what does it look like next is something that mm-hmm. uh, we often develop together as local ent- entities. So my base is in St. Louis, Missouri, and mm-hmm. that is where I would, I'll focus my, my response. Um, currently we are in the process of trying to close a jail in St. Louis, the close the workhouse yeah, campaign. The workhouse. Um, we're so excited uh, about legislation moving forward, and we're uh, we're also in the process of telling legislators what it should look like. 
And so, for instance, uh, right now, over 60 percent of our budget in the city of St. Louis is dedicated to policing and incarceration. Mm -hmm. And so we're lawmakers to wake up tomorrow and say we're we are going to reallocate funds for the purpose of community control. Um, We would basically direct um, commissioners of corrections to create alternative sources and alternative um, outsourced models of housing people who have uh, addiction issues and caring for people who need to be separated from folks that they are causing harm to, um, and also planning closure dates that match with the creation and establishment of these models. Um, Planning closure dates and um, honestly required therapy and bias, um, anti-bias, civilian training for police, teaching police officers how to live as civilians, what is expected of them um, in society, and making sure that what we see in terms of moving police from people who have the power to, who are encouraged to commit violence, into people who learn the impact of their violence and who are asked to uh, consider and admit their own abuse of that right to violence. Those things take time. And I believe that uh, dramatic reduction of policing is part of what has to happen now so that as we implement different leadership, um, different programs that speak to uh, the, the police who really are a lot of the time at, at fault for these altercations and, and these police crimes, we have to think about the reduction of policing as part of the abolishment of policing. And that is what I would do um, if the lawmakers were like, all right, how do we go ahead and abolish police? Mm-hmm. I would say, number one, we don't want to set free a bunch of people who are, I mean, they're they're at risk to commit crime. So it's mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. so it's sort mm-hmm. of not. Right. That's both police and people who who have mm-hmm. um who who have a desire to cause harm. So mm-hmm. it, knowing that both of these groups, um, if they were outside of the community's reach, then we would we be, we would be putting ourselves at higher risk. Um, knowing that, then we have to create a plan for this moderate movement of reducing policing, um, increasing community services, reducing prosecution, increasing um, health and human uh, human services access, um, increasing budgets for unhoused people. All of these things take time, but with intention and dedication, I do believe that um, a smaller size city like St. Louis within four to five years um, can actually see a more robust community-powered force of prevention, safety, and and control. And I think that that starts more often than not with shifting budgets, sometimes even ahead of legislation. we have to, we have to change our budgets. So that would be my immediate answer um, is to reduce policing immediately, reduce prosecutions immediately and increase exponentially increase 
the legislative support for social services. So, so am I was thinking about um, the way in which the United States is is a heavily militarized and police culture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's been said that we, you know, even our armed forces is is, is the most commanding, uh, you know, well well stocked um, military in the history of the world, um, and there's so much of the American identity specifically that is captured in this idea of, 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 of rights of ownership as, as it relates to property, as it relates to guns. Um, and I would also say, as it relates to people, we have that certainly in our historical narrative and, and it has its present manifestations about the ownership of other people. Um, all of that to say is that when I hear abolitionists and even in, in your narrative, just then kind of talking about how, the moderate dismantling, it causes me to have questions about just how do you shift culture? Because this is the culture that mm-hmm. we're working in, a highly militarized, um, gun-toting, gun-obsessed cultural context in the United States. And it seems like there needs there would have to be some significant culture shifting about how people even see themselves as a citizen and how their obligations from citizen to citizen would change, like our, that communal responsibility that mm-hmm. you, you mentioned. Um, how do abolitionists uh, work through that or conceptualize that? And then if, and even more specifically, what does the Christian abolitionists have to say to how we create, how we create community or create kind of a culture shift that would allow that community piece that you're referring to? Yeah, I think it's, you know, a big part of the naming the strength of the prison industrial complex, uh, naming the strength of a punitive uh, punishment oriented uh, protective services like police and ICE, you know, this idea that if you are, if you're not supposed to be here, um, you should be punished just because you don't have a passport, just because you don't have a green card, Um the answer is punishment. Uh, that is deeply uh, militarized. It's deeply militaristic. And uh, we see that in schools, even police-free schools. They're still punishment-centered uh, when children you know, do certain things that mm. aren't causing harm. Mm. They're just like annoying people. And the answer is punishment. Okie dokie. Uh, we get into knowing that part of why police and prisons are so successful is because culture loves them. <laughs> it's so- Mm -hmm. Uh, the same, it is the same issue with original, uh, with antebellum, uh, era abolition with, uh, the abolition of uh, enslavement in the South and well, really throughout the country. So in emancipation era abolition, we had the same problem because we know the story, the whole story of Juneteenth. We, We don't have no coloring page about the day after Juneteenth. Well, um, it's just so many, so many people uh, were lost to just disturbing. Uh, yeah, I mean, retaliation yeah, of folks mm-hmm. who didn't care what the law was. And this mm-hmm. is after two years of them living their life like they don't care what the law is. And so I do think that abolitionists, especially Christian abolitionists, we recognize that uh, one of the things that we are moving against is the attempt to control people's bodies. And that will always put us at risk. But what is important 
about uh, abolition, and this is where even, you know, sometimes I have like my faith interacts with it, is to know that it is, to know that it is right. And to know that we don't have to beat ourselves up for looking around and uh, making a mistake or for having to uh, shift the process or the timeline because of, you know, some grander cultural thing that's going on that we have to address. You'll notice that when people call for the arrest and imprisonment of Breonna Taylor's murderers, abolitionists um, tend to just say nothing. We're, we're not out here going, they should be in a rehab program and we should. Now I have said, take away their pensions. That's not, that's not a problem for me, but we're not out here saying, no, you all are wrong. You shouldn't be calling for that. I mean, that's, it's just not the time. And it doesn't respect people's um, righteous emotions of rage around mm-hmm. the murder mm-hmm. of that precious woman and, and mm-hmm. the false accusation of her partner. So I think that shifting culture requires um, grandiose humility and it requires mm-hmm. uh, an understanding and an acknowledgement that we, one, we have the power to prepare our communities for this change. And two, even as we move intentionally towards dismantling prisons and police, we must also move intentionally towards mass public education. And those seem like soft and cliche answers. And that is most likely because there will always be an armed, militarized enemy. Do not hear me saying that people will just not be armed. Um, but mm-hmm. do hear me saying that recompense and reparation looks a lot more like direct reparation <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. rather than punishment. Um, and I also truly believe that there is um, community enforcement that we just we're so boxed into police and prisons we can't see it. Um, but community enforcement is possible. And uh, grand scale community acknowledgement, knowing and, and hearing and believing one another is also possible. And that is in part because even among communities where um, one piece of a small town in Alabama where Black folks are being threatened and, you know, a, the Klan still exists, how do we move around and protect these people? Well, if communities really love each other if we really acknowledge our need of one another, it will happen. Because if my neighbor is in danger, I am in danger too. Mm. And so I do believe in some amount of um, emotional, mental health, education, and spiritual. I mean, the church will just have to pull up. We'll have to pull up. And we'll have to change the way that we talk about punishment in order for these things to be realized in our day. Will every single person listen? I, uh, you know, I, I really, I know they won't. I know mm-hmm. they won't. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but will history prove that it is possible for us to live and to continue to struggle? Coretta reminded us, Mama Corey said, you have to continue to move and to struggle for liberation. You don't just win it and then you're done. So I know that yeah. what we're inviting is literally the difference between the ease of granting a couple humans the right to murder us all and Mm -hmm. the difficulty, the family chores 
of having everyone feel more responsible for knowing their neighbors, for caring for each other, and for living honestly at all times Mm -hmm. and for Mm -hmm. holding each other to account for that. So yeah, what you're describing is a, is a, it's not mission impossible, but it is mission constant struggle. And that may be why we haven't done it yet. You know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Mission constant struggle. Well, we're going to talk about mission constant struggles um, a little bit more after this brief commercial break. So stick with us and we will be right back. Hey, y'all, Takemini here. You all know here at Truth Table, we absolutely love the church, which is why we are just so honored to introduce to you a new book entitled The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best by Reverend Erwin L. Ince Jr. The church is at its best when it pursues the biblical value of unity and diversity. In the new book, The Beautiful Community, pastor and theologian Erwin Ince shows us how to cultivate spiritual practices that reflect the beautiful community of our triune God. He unpacks the reasons for our divisions within culture and within the church while gently guiding us toward our true hope for wholeness and reconciliation, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Truth Table listeners can save 40% off of The Beautiful Community when you order at ivypress.com using promo code TRUTH20. The offer expires on September 30th, 2020, so jump on it, y'all. That's promo code TRUTH20 at ivypress.com for 40% off of the book, The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best by Reverend Erwin L. Ince Jr. And we are back. So we are, uh, before the break, Michelle was talking about answering the question about like, how do we begin to, uh, I guess, train or shape the culture? Um, uh, uh around um a more i guess toward more communal care and so i think um and a lot so let me just confess some things first of all i don't have tons of political education on abolition so let me just say that right now i have listened to quite a lot of podcasts um with uh ruth wilson gilmore um angela dr angela y davis i'm trying to listen to the people to the experts, uh, Miriam Kaba's piece with um, 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 the New York Times, which I thought was, that, that was actually my favorite piece on abolition that I've read. It was, yes, we mean literally, I, I think she says, mm-hmm. yes, we mean literally abolish the police. I think something like that. Y'all can yeah. Google it. Um, and then also um, listen to um, Josie Duffy Rice and Derricka Purnell. Um, their podcast that they had, uh, there was some episode, I can't, I can't, I feel like it was with the wing. Anyway, so I've listened to a lot of podcasts. And so, cause I have to, uh, you know, you know, we, we, we think theoretically too, but I think practically, like for me, I'm kind of like one person that's like, all right, let's, if this works, then how do we do it? Like, you know, like, it's more where my mind goes. But then I also think about, well, for me, in my in my from my vantage point, there seems to be a theological dilemma. Um, I find that in a lot of the talks, nobody's really talking about the nature of human beings, um, which is that we are inclined, uh, uh, predisposed to sin, right? To sin against ourselves and to sin against our neighbors, um, and so and so that would make me leery or apprehensive about entrusting myself right uh to my community um, and it makes me think about what Jesus said in John 2 24 talking about how he you know that was when he was clearing the temple 
courts because money changes and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, the, the um, that the you know the the temple is is a house of prayer you know uh, and, and so God was uh, Jesus was fighting for like the the holiness and the sacredness you know of of the temple so you know people use that flippantly be like yeah let's just get buck wild I'm like that's not what was happening okay so, like, but uh, but toward, oh my gosh toward the end of that uh, that chapter you know Jesus talks about how he, he you know people started to believe on him but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them you know and and we know i'm like well dang if jesus wasn't entrusting himself to the people he created how much more am i supposed to entrust myself you know to my to my community and my neighbors who have not demonstrated true love for me right and i failed right to also demonstrate love so it ain't just a one-way street here and so um so i guess and i guess it, it is in some ways dovetails with christina's um question but i i think about the ways that in some ways and i think this is fair to say the way that um Oluwa, our, that our sister Oluwa toyan how she was failed right by her community um, when she, you know, when she was murdered in that very horrific way. And so things like that made me go, well, dang, how could this happen? Like, how could this be a, how can this be tangible and a practical reality when you see something like that? Right. Um, and you see the way people treat one another and you, and you consider Mm -hmm. how many guns are on the street in America Mm -hmm. and how violent this nation is. Um, and so I just wonder how, is there, what do you say to the theological dilemma, right, of just of the fact of total depravity, right? And even for believers, indwelling sin, right? Um, and then what do we do about just the policies of just the prevalence of just guns being everywhere? What do we do about those things, Um you know, how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile that? I guess from an abolitionist um, framework, as a Christian abolitionist, uh, abolitionist, what do you do with the problem of sin? I guess is what I'm asking you. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, abolition uh, d- displays and centers the idea of our inability to uh, trust in the protection of people who uh, were, you know, the system was established through corruption. Uh, and so, so part of my, one of my most favorite things on the critical resistance website is the policing timeline. And it, it starts like way back y'all, like the origins of sheriffs in England um, mm-hmm. who were sitting beside and on uh, boards of local affairs. Uh, they were, I, I believe in some situations they were coroners um, and they were tax collectors and um, they had broad uh, permission to, you know, beat taxes out of people uh, to decide how a person died. Um, and so anyway, if you go and look at the timeline of policing, you'll see that it actually proves this idea of our inability to place anyone in uh, broad protective authority because the Supreme Court of the United States eventually even, I want to say this was the 80s, eventually recognized and said the police do not exist to protect. They exist to respond to harm that has already been committed and they exist to um, enforce laws after they have been broken. And so when we think about our strong need for uh, as, as constant safety as possible, 
what what we have to begin to undo is the idea that it is possible to at all times guarantee that safety. So in a lot of ways, our theological reality is that um, safety comes in as as much knowledge as as possible, uh, with as much uh, preparation for reaction as possible. But it does not come from putting into the hands of a corrupt system our trust, uh, mm-hmm. because in the same way that we know we can often fail one another, uh, we know that authority systems of authority that were started with um, license to kill, a punitive, broad punitive power, um, those will often fail us as well. I do think that it's important to, to note that that is my part of my theological argument for abolition, is to say that look at all the ways that we have failed. Uh, discussion of militarism uh, of like just the block. The block is militarized. <laughs> and yeah, those yeah. things have happened in spite of the presence of police and the prison industrial complex. Uh, look at the all of the you know, wild and scary things that we could name that you named just a few of them. All of those things have occurred in spite of Decades of people crying out for police reform in spite of years of folks studying and and honestly, people getting trained. A lot of police officers are getting trained in bias prevention. We have TV shows that um, center queer and trans police officers to try to make folks think that this, this is something that can really work. But the reality is that heterosexual police officers who are African-American are still getting shot when they don't have on their uniform because their fellow officers in their own unit don't recognize them when they're off duty. And as much as I know that my neighbor has the capacity to do me harm, how much more harm is done when I accidentally or intentionally elevate another fellow human with the kind of power to not only cause me harm and and still be protected for it, but to inform me that the harm that they're doing to me is legally protection. And I think that in some ways there is something, I don't think it's a catch-22, but I think there is an opportunity to discuss the strong tension of saying, how can we trust each other versus how can we feel secure without an authority over us? I believe that it makes it more possible for us to trust each other when enforcement, when protection, and when response comes directed from the broader community and not from a group of people who are based in militarization, based in surveillance, based in patrol. If our response to harm is based in community knowledge. I mean, remember, police have the right to to not reveal information to us. Mm -hmm. If our response to community harm is based in shifting how we teach generations, then our our dealing with, quote unquote, harmful people in our community can shift even as they are young, um, even as people try to break off and isolate themselves. I think it I think it is possible. Uh, for knowledge to really become 
a, a big part of our power. And everything that I'm saying is with an understanding that there are harmful people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine a fund dedicated to checking up on folks that tend to cause harm. Imagine a fund dedicated to people whose lives have been impacted by harm. And imagine those things as as part of what the community pours into. Imagine safety classes, just regular. You you have to um, get a driver's license. You also have to know how to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Imagine those things being part of education. And I think that it's possible for us to note, to realize that broadly they are helpful. The same way if all access to um, eyeglasses or shoes went away, if those things were abolished, those would be harmful. Imagine the implementation of things that would be broadly helpful, literally anti-bias classes, real American history, every piece of culture can work together to change how we are. Will it mean that we treat each other perfectly? No, I still have an eschatological lens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I believe that Dr. King was right. And I believe that racism, poverty, and militarism are three things that we do ourselves a disservice if we believe that those things will only be solved in the eschaton. He was absolutely right when he said, it takes the will of the people. It takes a revolutionary hope. It takes a revolutionary love to see those things done away with in our time and the same way that nobody ever thought chattel slavery would be over. And we see that we see the still the lasting impacts, right? Of former chattel slavery. Um, but chattel slavery is not something that every day we cannot imagine ourselves on the other side of. Abolition begs the question, is the prison industrial complex is the behavior of police, is it something that we can legislate, imagine, and plan intentionally for ourselves and our children or our children's children to live on the other side of? And the abolitionist today is simply answering yes um, and not so much saying it will be perfect, but in always saying it isn't working right now. So, yeah, I I mean, I I really do not think that your points are at odds with abolition. You know, if anything, it kind of it kind of shows um, that more community knowledge, uh, more cultural shift has has to go on Mm. Um, because, you you know, you make excellent points um, and our failures, our failures need to be face to face with an accountability structure that doesn't um, that doesn't involve putting us under the accountability of a system uh, full of people who have the right um, to continue to fail us. Y'all coming out with the questions today. <laughs> this, this stuff, though, I'm like, where's my, where's my no. little book? <laughs> no, but it's good, girl, because people don't be answering these questions. I'd be like, what that is, is y'all going to do about this? That's like, true. Well, and I think the gun situation is real. That's a really it's good question. issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if there's not gun policy running in tandem with abolition, then we are going to be in trouble. That's like, right. Know, so, That's right. 
So I was like, we got it. There's some deep programming and unlearning and confiscating mm-hmm. that needs to happen. And I, that's why I've consumed so many friggin' podcasts because I haven't heard. <laughs> I'm like, I'm I hear this in theory. I'm like, right. Uh-huh. I was like, but ain't nobody talking about sin. What is going, what is we going to do? Like, I'm right. And I think the the mass uprisings that we're seeing right now, we have to begin to talk really honestly about what it means to not stop protesting, to not stop okay. pushing lawmakers, and to not stop registering people to vote. Because policy and healthy legislation only moves. It only moves if the pol- if the politicians mm-hmm, want mm-hmm. that legislation. Right. And so we have to vote, y'all. We have to. <sighs> yeah. Um, I think a lot about our Native uh, kin who uh-huh. are on reservations right now and who people just think they don't exist. We just live like, oh, oh yeah, that no, happened. Sure. It was bad and yeah. it doesn't exist anymore. What if there was an uprising that recentered them um, and that pushed for policy and legislation that gave them their land back? I don't think anybody can imagine what we'd have to do if we returned Native land to people, you know, who, who really owned it. Abolition is similar. It's saying there's something's going to happen that a lot of people don't want. But the law of the land has to support what is right. It needs to support what is good. And the way that we imagine enforcement can truly be within the control of a community mm. And like I said, police reduction is the immediate step one. Um, and in some way, that's that, that's a part of keeping our enemies close. You know, right. so they have to come in to work. They have to check into this deprogramming uh, initiative that they have to go through in order to be reduced to joblessness. But right. I think there's a lot to be said for what, you know, what you outlined as Lots of initiatives working in tandem. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because abolition is not just shut it all down. Abolition is we have to build something. We have to build something that helps us to live better. So, right. Um, I was going to say, okay, so because it's an election year. Yes. um, It's an everything year, okay? Um, It really is. It really (laughs) is. And so I'm curious about um, these demands for. Uh, uh, abolish the police, defund the police. I'm I'm curious about um, their viability as far as with regard to um, the election, right? And getting these policies on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, are, mm-hmm. any of, are any of the um, key abolitionists or um, influential, you know, people within the abolitionist movement or the yeah. spokespersons, you know, for the abolitionist movement, are they at the policy table um, with the potential... Um, uh, I guess you could say with Biden or, who, mm-hmm. you know, or, or I guess on either side, but I can't imagine that the other side would have all be amenable to this. I know. I, I was so like, I'm like, do why, we have to yeah. talk about both right now? I don't even know how this works. I'm just, I guess I'm curious about the policy <laughs> side. Is, that, like, is there somebody at the table or that's at least somehow trying to work with them? Because what I did appreciate about um, Miriam uh, Kaba's piece Mm-hmm. In the New York Times, is that she's like, all right, y'all, you know, like if abolition is maybe you know too much for you to imagine right now. We can at least all agree that fifty percent of the police budget should be cut. 
Like, you know, and that we should exactly the exactly size of the police force. You know what I'm saying? Like, which I'm down with that. Um, and so I, I appreciated that because I was like, okay, finally something that feels at least practical to me that I think a lot of people, the general population can get behind. Right. Um, and so I'm just curious in that same vein, is there, mm-hmm. are abolitionists at the table? Is there a key abolitionist at the table working on policy to see if, to make these, uh, this somewhat of a reality uh, mm-hmm. for 2020 or, you know, or for, for the next, you know, uh, presidential, you know, uh, win or whatever, you know, for the next four years? Like, is there somebody at the table that's able to shape that so that it can be, you know, turned into policy? Yeah. Well, one, this is, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, mm-hmm. like we've kind of lined out that it's so important to see legislation connected to the work of community re-empowerment and reinvestment. Um, the Breathe Act, breatheact.org, I highly recommend everybody check it out. The Breathe Act is the culmination of the demands of the uprising. It's sponsored by Anna Presley. Um, it's sponsored by um, Rashida Tlaib. It mm-hmm. is, it's comprehensive. Um, okay. Massive shift. To, I, I'm going to go ahead and call it the modern, the contemporary Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. um, because it does not presume that people are ready for what folks would label radicalism, but it does invite people to acknowledge reality. And I would argue that abolition invites folks to acknowledge reality and then to commit to radical change. But what the Breathe Act does is it says if you acknowledge reality, then you have to admit that something has to be different. And so what Miriam Kaba was literally saying in her article is all wrapped up in, in the Breathe Act. It's, it's laid out in uh, mm-hmm. four critical parts. Well, and I, I won't run down all of them for yeah, you. I will yeah. just say mm-hmm. go to breatheact.org just as, as, a, as a guidepost for the fact that abolition is legislatable and the fact that moderating ourselves into it, that moving ourselves um, through um, different goals, different benchmarks, we are able, we're able to move towards the direction of radical um, transformative change, as well as a a hard focus on restorative justice, rather than a a broad um, allowance for punitive punishment. So when it comes to having abolitionists at the table, I think that the Breathe Act is indication that it is happening, that Congress women are pulling up, you know, they're showing up for it. And the other important piece to note is, like I said, when I was first answering questions, hyper-local change is the best immediate answer. Mm-hmm. So your local school board, your, your local school, just your one school, that's where you can start the change. And I, as a Christian, I want to go deeper. I want to say, start teaching your kids different. Start mm-hmm. doing Sunday school different. Stop having police appreciation Sundays. You know, all these things. There's ways to do it with a very hyper-local focus. So that combined with the um, having the right people elected, mm-hmm. those two things are, are really helping. And I believe we can really work 
to see at least the dream, the vision of what life looks like when we build rather than wondering and having to scrounge and search around for podcasts. I think getting all of these things, (laughs) (laughs) getting all these things together because your local, your local liberation uh, organization has to start to, to basically build their vision. And then that vision can become more ratified when you move to the people who can legislate, getting them into power and moving them to pull in abolitionists to the table. So it's incremental right now, but it is Uh happening. It's happening. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, because I was like, and and like, and just some things that people can practically do. I mean, like, I also think something that people can just get on board with is not having cops in schools. I feel like that should be something that people, particularly when you think about the school to prison pipeline. Yes. um, And how that impacts our people in particular. Like, I just... I feel like people should be able to get on board with that. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think that part of it is that it just feels like, um, um, you know, the abolitionist theory doesn't meet people where they're at. Like, you know what I'm mm-hmm. It just feels very <laughs> theoretical and it just feels very above the ground. It's like, what? Like, how does like, because I can tell you my mama and them ain't going to read our enemies in the blue. Okay. And our enemies in blue. They ain't going to listen to this podcast. She ain't, ain't going to listen to this podcast. So how do you communicate that? Oh. <laughs> We're keeping it so real right now. You know, this communicate is... this, you know, to mm-hmm. uh, black boomers in the black church, like in some practical ways, you got to get them on board. That's like, right. And so you I mean, you really there. do. They're, they're the, they going to vote. They going to fund it. Mm-hmm. They are the ones voting, you know. So yep. how do you do that? You got to make it very clear, very plain. Like, you know, and, and it, even if they're not on board with um, abolition, maybe there's something that they could be like, yeah, we can reduce the budget. So like y'all got way too much money. Like, you right. know, so like, how right. can we, right. <laughs> you know, just try to practically see, like, how can people begin to at least re- reshape or rethink about um, these things? Mississippi was the last state to actively fly the Confederate battle flag within the canton of its own state's flag. This year, amid national uprisings and a global pandemic, the flag was taken down as universities, businesses, and protesters placed immediate and intense pressure on the local legislator. Created in 2018, the Red Flag podcast began chronicling the history of the flag in an effort to fuel those seeking to change it. Now, in a three-part series finale, hosts Shalise Grove and Bo York speak with the activists, representatives, and changemakers who were able to pick up the torch of a decades-long movement and see it through to the end. Subscribe to the Red Flag podcast on iTunes or Spotify and learn more at redflagpod.com. See, now you got a question. I know you got the questions. You say so. <laughs> I, do, I do have a question about, um, about practical application. So let's say you're a part of a society where there is a, a elected official, high ranking, maybe the highest ranking in the land, who has committed all kinds of crimes, <laughs> all kinds of crimes against other people and the nation. And let's say, you know, they need to come to quote air quote justice mm-hmm. um or, or you have or you have police officers who have um who have shot an innocent woman in her bed um and so what then do we think about in terms of restorative justice like what does it look like for us to address those types of people right which we are in the number of i'm not saying like they're a different type of humanity than right. we ourselves are right. but um 
but what what do we do with unjust and wicked rulers and politicians? What do we do with um, uh, criminal police officers? Mm-hmm. What does restoration look like for that? Mm. Yeah, well, one, one thing that I appreciate about the response to this question is that it does not involve hugs in a courtroom. So I want to make that clear mm-hmm. that we ain't out here uh, lining up to give hugs. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. not what abolition mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Abolition is acknowledgement. It, is public, it involves public confession. Mm-hmm. And it does involve some amount of material loss because of the loss that you have suffered unto others. When we sin, we suffer. The whole, right. everybody who was on the ship with Jonah was about to die. Mm-hmm. And so in order for peace to be restored, sometimes mm-hmm. you got to throw that person into an area where they experience solitude, stillness, and face-to-face mirror recognition of the mess that they have done. This does not mean putting them into a cage and leaving them to their own devices. It means putting them through strict, rigorous programming where they agree. And even if they never agree, where they at least acknowledge that harm has been caused. So to be literal, to be practical, I would demand, and many activists are, I demand the resignation of Donald Trump. I demand swift impeachment. And I demand that Donald Trump wake up one day and say, I need to get out of this office. I need to move my whole administration. And, uh, you know, he may try to disappear, but justice also looks like him losing his entire empire. All of those assets being liquefied into support funds for the people to whom he has done damage. Mm -hmm. Would that process occur perfectly? Of course not. Would there be Mm -hmm. people who Mm -hmm. get too much and we would still have to fight to make sure that somebody else got a piece of it? Of course, that's, that's, it's never going to be perfect. But does, do do all the Trump towers need to become places for um, immigrants and unhoused people? Yeah, they do. And that, that Mm -hmm. would be, that would mm-hmm. be justice, mm-hmm. um, literal reparations for the people um, that he has caused such uh, lasting, impactful harm to. Similarly, uh, to be to speak literally about um, murderous police, mm-hmm. do they have to confess publicly that they murdered people? Absolutely, yes. Do they have to have to lose their pensions Mm -hmm. and see those pensions go into community protection and community power funds and directly as reparation to the families that they have suffered loss to? Absolutely. Yes. Police pensions are protected against prosecution in almost all 50 states. That has to change. It means literally Mm -hmm. that you can put an officer in jail and they can still retire at 500,000 to almost a million, like we saw with the, in the case of George Floyd's murderer, had a million dollar pension. Can't touch it because it's protected by law against prosecution unless in the case of sex crimes. And since George Floyd mur- murder was not a sex crime, can't touch the dues pension. So we're in a space where punishment has been enough mm. for us and it can't be anymore. Punishment has got to not be enough. And we are so concentrated on saying that punishment is what protects us that we're losing out 
on the reparations that we could be demanding if only a cage was not the only answer. And so I think that um, I don't actually get upset at reformists who say, let's do more than a cage. What I'm asking is if reformists can hear that our concentration can be directly on community empowerment, public confession, public admission, and bringing about transformative justice through law, not just through mm-hmm. 501c3s. We can't solve everything. 501c3s can't, it's like literally asking teachers to fix all of the problems in schools and not have any administration to do. Mm-hmm. So 501c3s can't solve all mm-hmm. of the unhoused issues. We have to have legislation that demands that when people do wrong, if the president confesses, whether or not the president confesses, if we can get the president out of office and move towards restorative justice, it looks like losing assets into a community trust that everything that this man has built goes to help the people that he has hurt. And that's literally the same thing that I would do with police. What do they do with their bodies? What do they do with their hearts and minds? This is where, this is where we have to move the community to demand knowledge and education are much more powerful than we would accept them to be. Actual um, rigorous Mm -hmm. educational programming we just, we, we just don't respect learning. And so it sounds wishy-washy mm-hmm. for me to make these statements, right? Like, they have to read a book. Mm-hmm. Sounds weak, doesn't it? But Frederick <laughs> Douglass reminds us that it's actually power. Um, Donald Trump can't read. Mm-hmm. Do you know how? I mean, I know we know, but like, does the, does the public know how directly connected to his foolishness, his stupidity is? Mm-hmm. He can't read. Mm-hmm. And that is directly mm-hmm. connected to how foolish and evil he is. Because right. we have to be able to lead people into knowledge and wisdom and grace mm-hmm. are twin sisters. Mm-hmm. And I believe they can still work together in transformative mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. I think my last question, Michelle, thank you for that, is um, about people who find themselves in these systems. Maybe they came into the policing system, the military system, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And they came in with the expectation that they themselves were going to be a change agent, that they mm-hmm. were going to, right. you know, let their light shine or, um, yeah. or that they were going to do it the right way. And, um, and now they're in the, so let's, let's even like qualify it more. Let's say this person is a believer mm-hmm. um, and they find themselves in police uniform, tr- deeply uh, empathizing and understanding the reality of police brutality, not in denial. Um, what what is their next step, and what does restorative justice and restore restoration to community look like for officers um, under from a, from an abolitionist perspective? Yeah, this is a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's funny is I get this question a lot of people who are in church systems that are like, my church leaders are not going to change. It's just going to be racist. What do I do? Bananas. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're going to be what they is. You know, um, <laughs> and we know, you know, the idol come first. The idol come first. Um, okay. So um, answering this question about what are people to do when they find themselves in these systems, fully aware of their corruption and harm, mm-hmm. but still trapped because that's, the, that's how they feed their family. 
what do we do? Um, and I, I'm reminded uh, of, of a conversation the three of us had a couple years ago that was re-solidified in our discussion of the film, Harriet, uh, which is that there were station agents along the Underground Railroad. And when Harriet embarked on her freedom journey, she was told to go to one place first, to the church. Boy, Harriet didn't have any respect for that old pastor. She was like this man out here baptizing white babies and saying okay to the master here and the landowner there. When she got to that church, the pastor revealed Mm. himself as a help to her. And it was clear that he was maintaining his proximity to people in power so that he could protect the people who were least proximate Mm -hmm. to that power. We have to decide if we are Harriet or if we are the reverend. I've been both in certain situations. We all know different police officers and um, even I would say there are judges, local judges in my city who have been both. And I truly believe that there are pastors who are underground railroad station agents right now. And were they to wake up to abolition, quit their jobs and run away today, we would lose the war in the long run. Uh, we, we are not, uh, abolition is, uh, mm-hmm. is peaceful in the idea that it wants to see justice bring peace. Abolition is not peaceful in the realm of pacifism. I know mm-hmm. that we are at war, spiritually, theologically, mm-hmm. politically, we are fighting a battle. Mm-hmm. And we have to have people who are willing to be on the inside under the deepest cover. And, I, and there are police officers who need to wake up and quit tomorrow. And that is how yeah. the spirit leads them. But there are also police officers who will wake up and say, I need to mobilize from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to be able to speak the truth that abolition is possible. And when the time comes, I'll be ready to move everyone who listens to me Everyone under the, under the influence of my power, my position, even just my social influence. We have social influence. Um, everybody under those influences, I will have them ready to support it or at least ready to not respond to the conversation in the same way that anti-abolitionists responded after law came down about um, after slavery. So those are, I think, are the two main options. You get up, you leave, you tell your family, we're going to do something different. And I believe churches need to have uh, funds, support funds for former police officers who need therapy, for former police officers who need rent assistance, um, for former police officers. And even, you know, there are some city prosecutors that need to quit. Um, we, the church needs to be ready to support them because the community will despise them the way that they, you know, probably rightly despise the apostle Paul when he stopped killing folk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're you're connected to murderers. You're gonna, you're gonna get somebody spitting in your face, but do you deserve to be caged? Mm. Never. And that's where the community can come in and say, look how abolitionists even have the space to show provision to police who are going to come and give inside information that we couldn't have gotten from somebody else. We're going to come and say, I do want to go through these deprogramming um, opportunities and even assist y'all in taking some of the corrupt tactics that can be restored 
to our best and highest use by giving them into community control. Um, because we know that even though you have to learn how to aim a gun in order to shoot one, learning how to aim a gun is not evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a police officer does have some tactics that through restoration can actually be used for the betterment of the community. So those are the two big things. You either got to get out, you decide, and the spirit will lead you and you won't do it perfect. This is the problem with punishment as protection. We think it can go perfect. Nothing can go perfect. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to quit perfectly. You're not going to become an underground railroad station agent perfectly. Um, either you leave right away or you start refusing to arrest. You start getting the phone numbers of local organizers and activists who say, you can call me anytime if you're having a de-escalation issue. You start calling de-escalators and explaining to your sergeant, oh, well, this person was here. They had it handled. I'll keep an eye on it. You start introducing yourself to activists. Find a way to gain trust and to be held accountable when activists tell you, we don't trust you all the way. You can't come to these meetings. You tell them, mm. that's all right. I will be here whenever you need me. And show yourself, show yourself as supportive and at, at whatever risk. And that is to me, the first step for a police officer. And then it becomes the first step. Sometimes it's easier for prosecutors. It's easier for defense attorneys. Um, but there are first steps to becoming that station agent um, that, that we don't want to overlook. All right. Wow. Well, this is, um, I guess this, this kind of leads into the last portion, y'all, <laughs> of this episode, because uh, a lot of this, you know, abolitionist framework, you're, 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 um, you're dreaming up a world, right, um, that doesn't yet exist, you know, so, uh, so I think we, we thought it would be good for us to uh, dream together. Uh, freedom dreams, yeah. you know, kind of, uh, I, I guess in some ways to kick the question back to also, we're all ideate, but kicking the question also back to me and see about the question about like, okay, today, if you had all the power, you know, to make, uh, to shape police or to get rid of police, what would that look like? <laughs> what, would you, what would you do? You know, so uh, we will all answer that question, you know, on what that looks like. Uh, and yeah, should, who, should, who should start? Should I start? See, would you like to start? Go for it, E. Me? Okay. So if I had all the power to change everything, um, if I ruled the world, everything. I'd free all my sons. I would not free all my sons. I have to tell you that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that's what people... <laughs> Because I'm sorry. I cannot get beyond the fact that people... I, I just think of like an R. Kelly. I'm like, no, he is a danger to society like, <laughs> to be away from the general population. I just, and maybe I need some more work on this. I do. Now I do understand that uh, a function of oppression is that it, it, uh, it does limit our imaginations. Right. And it could, it could suppress our imaginations right. in some ways. Um, but I'm also just really thinking about, I, I, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about it theologically, to be honest. Although this could be a function of oppression too. I don't know. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not saying I'm immune to that. Uh, but who knows? Here's what I would do. All right. I might, I might not free all my sons, but <laughs> I do believe <laughs> that we have a, we got a mass incarceration issue, y'all. Oh, we overly incarcerate people. That is not the answer for about 90% of what happens, you know, um, in the world and so, or, or in our country or even in the world. So I would say that starting with prisons, I think we have got to release 
Uh, we, I think, I think they need to see a, a complete review of everybody. It's going to take a long time, but everybody's cases to see like, why is this person locked up? Should this person be locked up? Have they already paid their time? Like release. I'm, I'm talking about releasing a lot of people, but before you do that, we have to rehabilitate them. We have to actually give them mental health services because they've been traumatized also within, right? Within um, uh, the system because the system was not, because we do treat people inhumanely in prisons. And so I know abolitionists say we don't need pretty cages, but I say we can have some pretty stuff. And so like, I, mean, I, I do think we have to treat people. She put pretty on it though. I think we, have, first of all, we got the diet. What are y'all feeding these, them? You know, why are they not getting healthy food options that this rich country can give them? Right? Why are we not giving um, um, people, uh, even lifers, uh, the option to rehabilitation programs? Why is this not rehabilitative? You know, that just benefits just for the even the ethos within the prisons, right? Um, uh, um, so, mental health ter- services. I talked about that educational, being able to actually um, uh, obtain an education, uh, get rid of prisoners having to work. Uh, for below just ridiculous wages um, and actually outsource that so we can actually have manufacturing happen in America where people can actually get jobs. <laughs> like, you know, instead of using free prison labor and treating these people like um, enslaved uh, people, that's, it's just wrong. Like, you know, I just think there's a lot can, that can be changed. And then obviously freeing people. So I would like to see at least 20 to 50% of the inmates freed you know, and rehabilitated so they can come back into society and function, be able to restore their vote so that they could actually vote and participate in the election process. So that's what I would do with regard to, uh, and then hopefully we're reducing prisons. That way we're not, we don't have as many prisons. Hopefully we're closing them down, right? And maybe they can be used as places to actually house um, our unhoused people. Um, uh, For the police, what I would do, I would like to see at least 50% of the police budget Honestly, I'd like to see 80% of the budget um, taken out and used for different services. Um, that's across the board or around the country. Then I'd like to see the um, police departments destroyed and rebuilt in phases. It has to happen in phases. Um, and, and like, I mean, completely reimagining what it is. I mean, down to changing the name. So it's no longer police. Y'all are public safety guardians. Okay. And so, and you do not have access to guns so easily, willy nilly. You can't go into a situation with your gun. Like what is happening? So I would like to see it destroyed, rebuilt, but in a limited capacity where these people are coming back, not as police, but the public safety guardians. Okay. And so in the very extreme cases where, you know, something's awry in the home, then they come in and diffuse or hopefully, yeah, they're learning to de-escalate, right? So that their their first move is not with a gun. Um, and then obviously all the other public services are being ramped up, being built up, people are being trained um, so that we can call if there's somebody's having a mental health issue. Uh, we can call if somebody's homeless, you know, and they're breaking in because they want food, they want shelter, they want something, you know, we can call a service, you know, for that. Um, then I'd also want uh, on the like, I, I appreciate color of, of change because they got rid of cops. You know the reality show, or at least those reruns, right? So that's that show's ending. So I would like to see Law and Order. I'm sorry, y'all. SUV, all that stuff. That's got to go. All these cop shows have got to go uh, because it's it's, it's myth making, right? Contributes to myth making. Um, we've also been socialized into thinking that you know we need cops for everything, and we don't need cops for everything. 
so I think our um, Hollywood has got to have a completely different strategy on that. Um, but I also think we'd have to go for the, our music and even our television shows, the violence in our music, the violence in our, see, people ain't gonna like this. The music, the te- te- television shows, the violence and the, the level. And I love some gangster shows. Okay. I ain't gonna lie. I'm, I'm confessing. I'm just telling you the truth. So, like, so I, I, do, I think I gotta confess. Okay. I, I love my little mom shows, but seriously, like this, we gotta do a cultural reprogramming and unlearning of violence it's everywhere it's in our music it's in our tv shows it's in our movies like can we begin to change this like do we does that person need to be raped what's happening like you know what i'm saying did that person need to be shot in the head why what's happening like you know so like how can we re- begin to um change our programming uh so that we are all a little bit more we're become more sensitized to violence when we see it and hopefully it begins to repulse us um so those are the things i think those are all of these areas i think i tried to go to cultural peace psychological peace prisons and then also police so yeah that's what i would do that's my that's my freedom dream it might not sound like freedom to everybody but that's my freedom dream (laughs) hey that's all right that's all right Hey, hey, there were there were right, lots of yeah. moments of, of reality and hilarity in that. <laughs> there was lots of that going on. You know, I think um so my, my freedom dream and, and and I'll and I'll agree with you, it may not sound as it's not gonna be very um my, my dreaming is limited. I'm I'm just gonna be real with that. My dream is my dream is limited <laughs> on this day. <laughs> and um it's a it's a limited dream. It's a dream within within certain boundaries. Um, but I, I but I will I will say this. I think one of our our at, at bottom one of the core issues with policing is um, is 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 unchecked fear and cowardliness and the vulnerability that it takes. Uh, even Michelle, when you were talking about kind of this abolitionist idea of. Um, the community bearing responsibility for each other. Well, at bottom, the reason why that's not enticing or why we can't walk into that more and more is because we are afraid. We are afraid to uh, to demonstrate the vulnerability to entrust ourselves to our neighbor and to have our na- and, and to have our neighbor entrust themselves to us. And when I think about police officers, you know, uh, sun up to sundown, they live in existence of fear oftentimes covered up as bravado and control um, and and allegiance and um, kind of fraternity loyalty and connection and and trust that's rooted in uh, secrecy and covering up what has been done wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the whole expression of, you know, I'd rather be judged by 12 than than carried by six. And that is at the heart of the, the character of policing in America. Um, and the system is set up where people would rather, um, if they're afraid, take a life, even if it's unjust and unfounded, but solely based on their fear in the moment, um, then run the risk or the vulnerability of having their life taken or having their body injured in any way, shape or form. And so uh, until we can deal with, I think, at bottom, the issue of cowardliness, the incredible fear that sucks out any opportunity of love then um, we're, we're just going to be limited. It's just a, a, we're limited without love. Um, yeah. a, a lack of love just puts up uh, an inability for us to dream as we ought to dream, for us to entrust over to neighbors as we ought to, um, for, for, uh, for officers to 
to function in ways that are truly courageous and not just look like bravado. Mm-hmm. Um, that love is so deeply needed. What So what comes to mind for me, there's a text in Luke 3 where uh, John the Baptist is, um, you know, the forerunner, the, the clearing repentance, right? And, um, and different people, different representatives of society are coming before John saying, in light of this, how must I live? In light of this, what does this look like now for me? And um, so, so publicans come, come before him and say this. And, and in every instance, in every instance, every member of society, in light of the gospel to come, in light of the repentance that we ought to come in hand, in every instance, instance the action is that you must live more justly. Mm-hmm. And um, that is supposed to be the fruit of the repentance that is to come. This is what John is declaring. And so he says to, um, you know, a whole host of people, uh, you know, people asking, what shall we do then? He says, and uh, in, in, um, he, he answereth and saith to them, he that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. Mm-hmm. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. So this is a, this is a statement of you have enough. So give more, right? So this, every instance is about justice. Don't take more than what you need. And what's fascinating is that he has this moment where the soldiers ask him the same thing. And I would say that while policing, um, as we know, and I think abolitionists, anti-racist abolitionists are spot on to draw our attention to the interconnection and the history of slave patrols. Um, yeah. But yeah. but in the kind of a global historical sense, we think about uh, policing historically as the soldiers of the land, so to speak, right? And obviously they're state representatives too, right? And John would go on to be murdered by the state as well, right? Um, but these same these soldiers come to him in the crowd and they say, hey, in light of this repentance that you're calling for, what must be done? Mm-hmm. John tells them the three th- three things specifically about how soldiers, guardians, officers, police ought to live in light of the repentance that's to come. And it says, um, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him saying, and what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. And I look at those three, um, three commands as the pillars of what reform looks like to to police, to soldiers, to everyone, which is to learn to practice nonviolence mm-hmm. um, ideologically and as a strategy. Um, so, so starting with that, um, neither accuse any falsely. So that's an, a question of ethics. Um, and to break down elements of the system that incentivize corruption for police. So if police officers have to hit a quota on how many stops or how many tickets that they give, well, that puts my family in jeopardy. That puts your family in jeopardy yes. because that's a built into the system. And it's an unethical policy that's built into the system that creates hyper-criminalization and hyper-policing. So neither accuse any falsely, or and it also includes setting people up, uh, going after people, et cetera. And then the last one is to be content with your wages. And that has to do with, um, you know, I, I think ultimately that has to do with how people see their value you in society. The police police attracts all kinds of people who go into that field. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that there are people who are officers who feel such, um, who feel unseen, whose identity, um, who, who come out of kind of poor or working poor context. And their identity now is like, I am in charge. I'm running this show. 
And so John is telling them in light of this repentance to come, in light of this just living, is to be content with their wages. And that doesn't mean that we should pay people terrible salaries. It just means that we cannot exploit the roles that we have. We can't be so, um, we have to resist the temptation to do unjust things to gain more money. Mm -hmm. And I think that is at the heart of policing in America. So those, those three, I think, pillars can speak to us now mm -hmm. about um, how we would advise uh, police officers and soldiers, et cetera. Ultimately, uh, we need a cultural shift, a cultural change, which is where I would affirm that kind of abolitionist ideology of a return to restorative justice. I think it has to be taught from, from kindergarten on up, and it has implications for not just uh, criminal justice, but certainly um, uh, the way that we discipline our children, uh, the way we speak to children, um, so, I mean, you, you have to permeate an entire culture about what we think we're entitled to do to other people's bodies, including our own. Mm -hmm. And so justice and holiness always live together because holiness has to do with what is going to be set apart, <laughs> what is going to be protected. Right. And um, and what it is that we um, well, what is we think we can do to others, and what we can do for ourselves is going to be central to that. So. Every justice movement, I think, has to be empowered by a holiness movement as well. So that is my 25 cents on that. <laughs> and I, I pray people big, I pray people build bigger dreams than I and have the love to make it happen. Yes. <laughs> well, see, what about prisons? What about prisons? That's what I was going to say. Oh, okay. um, what about prisons? Yeah. Prisons. Prisons. I, I, so I, um, I think that, yeah, yeah, I think prisons are largely, and obviously there are different types of prisons, but I think largely prisons are spaces in which people become re-traumatized from earlier traumas that they already, already had. So people in prison are more likely to have experienced childhood trauma and abuse, sexual mm -hmm. assault, et cetera, abandonment, victimization. Yeah. Um, I saw a research study several years ago about how most crimes are committed when people are experiencing some type of hypoglycemia, meaning like their sugar levels are too low. So this connection between hunger, poor nutrition, uh, poverty, um, all that stuff is weaved together. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I agree with Michelle and, and, and I imagine other abolitionists that the prison itself is not going to produce um, the type of people that we would want to be our neighbor, for example, mm -hmm. right? It's not what we would want for ourselves, what we want for our children. I do think we do need uh, rehabilitation centers. Um, I do think we need uh, rehabilitation facilities. And I think we have to really address the consequences of deinstitutionalization of mental health related matters in the country. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a diehard advocate of, of, of locking up, you know, uncle Jeffro because he talked to himself, but there were consequences with uh, deinstitutionalization that now um, we have so many people who really are untreated, yes, yes. manic, um, yes. bipolar and schizophrenic. And, it, and when they look like you and I, there is no intervention of empathy um, they, they are simply criminals. So I think, I think those things have to be working on together, both criminal justice reform and obviously mental health, um, mm -hmm. reform. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the interplay of capitalism can't be denied oh, yeah. or overstated because, you know, one of the yes. pillars that, that you talked about, see, that was right on is contentment with wages. With wages. And here the prison industrial complex exists in large part because of the opposite, the other extreme of discontentment oh, yeah. with wages. 
because, you know, I don't think that COs and police officers are seriously well paid all the time. But what I know for a fact is that executives and people who privatized prisons oh, yes. are doing just, they were doing just fine. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Before the privatization of prisons. Um, Enterprise is a rental car company that uh, movement challenged them out of basically investment in the prison industrial complex. They divested their larger prison commissary funds, their, um, the ways that their employees uh, were receiving stocks and assets directly connected to um, making money off of uh, the enslavement exactly of people in prison. And when that divesting, when that divestiture happened, they didn't lose anything. <laughs> they didn't miss a beat, you know? Um, and so if we can divest from the prison industrial complex, things will happen yes. that were already going on before. Think about the institutionalization of mental health. What was the real problem? It was humans not being held accountable. It was services being thoughtless. It was studies not being paid attention to. It was this, the same thing that happened with the deinstitutionalization of cleaning surgical rooms, right? In mm. the early 1900s, nobody was cleaning up right. because washing hands was a Moorish, was a dirty African thing. But if we are able mm. to be wise, empathetic, and literally... Wow admit that knowledge is power. We mm. could see centers mm. where there are no bars, mm. there are no cages, but there are safe spaces for people to heal. Mm. And a safe space mm-hmm. for a person who has caused harm to heal means that the person they have caused harm to gets to know where that space is and gets to dictate how close they get to it. That's community control. Mm. It's still possible. And it is possible if we educate and receive and embrace the knowledge that acknowledging one another, confessing, and this is what I love about what John says in the Bible, is repentance is your way to live right. Mm-hmm. And I think that our fragility is, yes. is stored up not only in that trepidation that you talked about, but mm-hmm. what we stack on top of that trepidation, mm-hmm. which is lies. Oh, yeah. Miss, what do we miss, stack miss, on top? What do police officers put on top of their um, dis, just disabilitate, de, uh, debilitating fear? It's a lie. Um, what do we stack on top of right. being embarrassed about how we live? A lie. Repentance is honesty. And if I'm able to remove the fragility mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. repenting of making a mistake, what do we say to people who are addicted to pornography? The hardest thing for you to do is to admit you have a problem. But mm-hmm. once they do, once they move into living honestly, if everyone understood the difference, and this is, we've talked about this too, if everyone understood the difference between secrecy and privacy, life would be a lot different. Yes. And this is where I believe the church mm-hmm. comes in. We need to be honest about the fact that being satisfied with wages is different from being greedy. We need to be honest about the fact mm-hmm. that capitalism mm-hmm. plays such a large role in the prison oh, industrial yes. complex that we don't even remember that we right. used to not have a prison industrial complex That's until true. somebody woke up and right. said, let's invest in prisons because scared people make good money. Yep. The church as mm. the mediator mm. of the truth, the true truth, we can change so much more than mm. we have the energy to do so right now. And so when Dr. King was talking to us and said, we have everything we need to end poverty, to shift racism, and to challenge militarism, he said, the one thing we lack 
is the desire to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that our desires, oh, our passion, right. our connection to the author of all holy passion, um, it's time for mm-hmm. us to be uh, a ministry of testimony again Amen. in a revolution, mm-hmm. in a mission to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, y'all, we didn't ask the abolitionists all the questions. <laughs> yes, we so did. We ask more. Yes, we so did. glad this was not a series. You we know, congratulations, y'all. And <laughs> tire me out. <laughs> We didn't we didn't uh 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 confess some things, we didn't ideate it, we gave our freedom dreams that might not be free to y'all, but it's our dream. (laughs) Well, hey. There's this little thing called sin. It's your own dream. (laughs) You can ideate, you're free to ideate. Yeah. <laughs> we are just modeling, okay? We are modeling, Ooh, and we are I'm trying to do freedom de- dreams in the midst of the reality that sin is a no limit soldier. All right? I thought I told you. I thought I told you. Sin is a no limit. If you say an- if you say another rap reference in this episode, <laughs> 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 anyway, our freedom dreams. Well, one, more, one more, one more. Boundaries protect what is sacred. So I appreciate right. what you said, see, about holiness and, and, uh, and justice, you know. So anyway, uh, I hope y'all really appreciate this episode. I mean, we were just like, let's, let's just see how this goes. We wanted to mm-hmm. give y'all some, you know, some practical things that we're actually thinking about um, and, and thinking through. And, and I know we're all thinking through these things. So I hope this episode helps to facilitate that um, for y'all. So anyway, thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about Ask an Abolitionist using the hashtag Truth Table. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Truth Table or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable or you can bless us at our PayPal which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York and we have been your hosts Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.